Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shibu Blani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm privileged to have one of our most well-known guests join us, Sal Khan. We've had a lot of amazing guests on the podcast, including Ariana Huffington and CEOs of various health systems and education companies, but among the most famous is Sal because of the major impact he's had over the past decade on the way all of us learn. I think he helped coin the term flipping the classroom, or at least popularized it with his famous TED Talk about a decade ago that Bill Gates introduced him on. And as you know, he's the founder and CEO of Khan Academy, which has reached tens of millions of learners, been translated into over 40 languages. And we owe a lot of our roots at Osmosis to the work he's done because he had hired Rishi Desai, our chief medical officer, to begin Khan Academy Health and Medicine before he joined Osmosis. So Sal, it's a total privilege to have you on the podcast today. Great to be here. So the first question I have is just for the people who don't know you, but they know Khan Academy, do you mind giving a bit of background about yourself and why you even started Khan Academy? And then obviously we'll go into how the past year with COVID has totally changed what you guys are doing. Yeah, you know, Khan Academy started in a little bit of a random way back in 2004. My original training or background was in tech and in math. Uh, but post-business school, I found myself as an analyst at a hedge fund in Boston. But about a year out of business school, I was getting married uh, in the Northeast. My family was visiting me from New Orleans, which is where I was born and raised. And it just came out of conversation that one of my cousins was having trouble in math. So I offered to tutor. Her name's Nadia. And she agreed when she went back to New Orleans. She was 12 years old. I started working with her. That started working well for her. Started working with her younger brothers. Word spread in my family. Free tutoring was going on. Before I knew it, there were 10 cousins that I was working with every night, every day after work. Uh, and with the background in software, I started writing software for them. I saw a pattern. A lot of them had gaps in their knowledge. And I thought I could write software that gives them questions and that I could keep track of what they knew and what they didn't know. And a friend about a year later said, hey, this is all cool, but how are you scaling your lessons? And he suggested that I make YouTube videos for my cousins. I thought it was a horrible idea. YouTube is for cats playing piano. But I got over the idea that it wasn't my idea and I gave it a shot. And I never viewed this as a business or, you know, it was funny in the late nineties, I had sworn off entrepreneurship. I said, I just don't have what it takes to be an entrepreneur. It's too mentally and emotionally taxing. Uh, so I always said, this is just my family project. But by 2008, 2009, it had kind of taken over my life. There was about 50 or hundred thousand folks using it back then. So I set it up as a not-for-profit, just thinking that, look, this could one day be maybe a new type of Oxford or Smithsonian or, you know, an institution that could be there for the world. And it was delusional. I was operating out of the same walk-in closet that I am right now to think that one day this could reach billions. But I said, well, why not try? So I set it up as a not-for-profit with the mission of a free world-class education for anyone, anywhere. 2009, I quit my day job. I guess I had become an entrepreneur, even though I had sworn it off. And, uh, you know, that first year was tough. But by 2010, we got our first philanthropic support. And, you know, the last 10 years have just been a journey of adding more content, making the software more interactive, the practice, tools for teachers, and growing the users. And, and you know, a lot of what you just talked about, the number of users and the translations and the localizations to other languages. That's amazing. And so uh, side note, Nadia is probably in her mid-20s now, and some of the other family members are probably also in their 20s. What are they doing now? And what do they think of uh, how explosive their private tutoring with you has become? Yeah, you know, it's a little bit of a running joke, especially with Nadia. There's a lot riding on her success. You know, don't feel too much pressure. But yeah, Nadia is now 28, 
you know, maybe 27 years old. She graduated from Sarah Lawrence and Fareed Zakaria was her commencement address speaker. And it was a little awkward. He called her out. He's like, oh, and Nadia Rahman is here. The the young girl who launched, you know, whatever, a billion lessons and has, you know, Nadia's like, yeah, my claim to fame is I couldn't get unit conversion in seventh grade. That's my claim. Like all of her friends give her a hard time about that. That's so funny. So we all, you know, hundreds of millions of people and a lot of parents, especially uh, are very grateful to you, obviously for creating it, but ultimately it's Nadia who created it because she needed help on unit conversions, right? That's right. That's exactly right. That's amazing. So can you talk us a bit about the growth story from 2010 in terms of, you know, how'd you go from millions to tens to hundreds? And then let's catapult that into COVID, what you've seen over the past six months, especially. When I quit my day job, there was about 50,000 to 100,000 people using Khan Academy per month. That was in 2009. You know, you fast forward to pre-COVID, we were looking at about 20 million per month. So it had grown by a factor of what is that, 200 or something. And, you know, a lot of people oftentimes say like Khan Academy went viral. It kind of did like a slow version of virality, which I would call word of mouth. Um, There's a handful of videos that maybe went a little bit viral, but, you know, there's not like one video that all of a sudden had like, you know, Gundam style type views or something like that. It was more that I just kept making more and more content, more software, started working with schools, you know, the TED Talk. There's a couple of moments that we were like these step functions in our growth. We were growing quite rapidly as is, kind of month on month. We were growing 10, 15% every month sequentially. But then it was in August of 2010. And this is when I was still like operating out of my closet. I was living off of savings. It was a really stressful time. It came out of the woodwork that Bill Gates was using Khan Academy. Kind of mind blowing to me, I mean, on a lot of levels. And there was already a reporter from Fortune Magazine who was doing a story on Khan Academy. And it was the same week that, Bill Gates was at some event and he randomly starts talking about Khan Academy. He's like, yeah, there's this new site I'm checking out. It's really cool. And so that reporter reaches out to Bill Gates's PR people and they, they take his interview. And like, he's telling me, he's like, Hey, I just called Bill Gates. I was like, what, you can do that. You can just call up Bill Gates. And he's like, yeah, and he's taking the interview. And I was like, what's the interview? He's like, the interview is about you. And I'm like, what? So it was kind of this one of these crazy moments, but the reporter, that first article in fortune magazine, when it came out at the end of August was, Sal Khan, Bill Gates' favorite teacher. And I felt like serious imposter syndrome. I was like, am I? Did, did he say that? Because I don't want him to think that I said it. Um, but that article took us from about 100,000 people every month to about a quarter million people every month were using Khan Academy. You fast forward to April of 2011, that's when the TED Talk came out. And that one actually did kind of go viral, just as a TED Talk. And then our usage went to a million. Then we were in 60 Minutes that summer. It got to like two or three million a month. But then since that three million to get to like 20 million, it's just been, you know, steady word of mouth and and people just stumbling on it through search and whatever else. And then COVID hits and COVID, we just, in learning time, we saw 3X. In terms of number of people, we saw about 50 or 60% increase and they were spending 50 to 60% more time each. Uh, So now we're looking at, you know, on the order of 30 million folks every month and they're spending, you know, pre-COVID, they were spending about 30 million learning minutes per day. And then in the spring, we were seeing them go up to about 80, 85 million learning minutes per day. Wow. That's an incredible story. And I love the mix of serendipity that sometimes happens. You know, it sometimes feels when it rains, it pours. Bad news and good news, right? That same week, Fortune was covering you. Bill Gates was mentioning you at a conference. So speaking of when it rains and pours, obviously 2020, we're in a really pouring year in terms of how many absurd things have seemed to happen this year. So 
Can you talk to us a bit about your own personal experience with COVID, your family, hopefully everyone is safe. I believe your wife is a physician, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. So anything you can comment about that. And then you've already talked about the growth of Khan Academy during COVID-19, but you also run Khan Lab School. And it would be very interesting to hear about the physical school and how it's had to adjust. Yeah, you know, COVID, it's been suboptimal for most folks, including ourselves. Actually, I mean, there's been places I'm a little guilty admitting that I enjoy not having to travel and the efficiency of Zoom and not have to worry about looking too professional, you know, below the camera cutoff line. So those have all been wins. And look, in the whole scheme of things, I've been very fortunate. You know, we have a nice house with a backyard where our kids can play. Our mother-in-law lives with us. So we have extra supports. I get to work from home. My wife is a physician, but, you know, now she's able to spend several days seeing patients remotely. So we have all the supports that anyone would ever want for something like this. And, you know, and as I said, some of the silver linings have been less travel, more time with kids, you know, just to be able to have lunch with them. COVID has a way of kind of editing your, your social life. And I think in a good way. So it's a lot less of the big mixer party type gatherings where it's like small talk, but you're more of the, let's hang out at a, in a backyard with masks on and sit around a fire and, and have, have good conversations with our closer friends and family. So yeah, it, it's been fine from our, from our point of view. We're very fortunate um, you know, KLS, it's a school I started back in 2014. Khan Academy was doing what it's doing. Hopefully, it reaches billions of folks. You know, I wrote a book called One World Schoolhouse in 2012. And in that, like the first third was how did the education system get to where it is? The middle third was my story of how I ended up doing Khan Academy. And the last third was what does education need to look like or what could it look like given the tools that we now have, like Khan Academy? And I wrote stuff like, you know, some of it has nothing to do with technology. Why don't we have full year, full day schooling? Like summer vacation was part of an agrarian civilization, et cetera. And, you know, the fact that kids come home at three, that's based on like the leave it to beaver type of model of of homes, which is not the norm anymore. Maybe never was. But, you know, can you leverage peer-to-peer learning on top of personalized software so you can get more human-to-human interaction? We all know the best way to learn something is to teach it. Can you do a mastery-based transcripts where it doesn't matter how long it took someone to, to learn something? What matters is that they learned it versus traditional system. You have a fixed amount of time to learn it, but you have a variable outcome, A, B, C, D, F. Can you you know, get really efficient at the traditional skills so you can have more time for kids going out into the world and having internships or projects or being entrepreneurial. So that's what we were doing. And, you know, COVID hits and it shouldn't be surprising, but, and I don't get any of the credit really. It's really the administration and the teachers. They didn't miss a beat because the school has been investing for the last six years on how do we build autonomy with the students? And, you know, one of our principles is that the sign of a great education is not necessarily that kids know how to factor problem. I mean, that's important too, but that like, what do kids do when there's not an adult looking over them? And so, you know, this has always been a school where it'll kind of blow your mind. You know, you'll see seven-year-olds, they manage their own Google calendar. They know where they have to be, how they need to be. They know how to run a meeting agenda better than most adults, much more efficiently. And so these kids are very independent. And so when COVID hit and the teachers are very tech savvy, and it's always been, you know, whenever you have, live interaction. It should not be about lecturing. It should be about Socratic dialogue, problem solving. And then the kids had the agency to kind of do what they need at their own time and space. So, you know, it's been still suboptimal. The socialization, all all of that definitely got hurt, but they've done, I think, about as well as as you could expect. That's pretty incredible. I I mean, I obviously knew a lot about the the pedagogy at KLS, but I had no idea about the uh, (laughs) <laughs> you know, I think maybe whatever you're using to train seven-year-olds to set good meeting agendas and use Google Calendar, we should probably uh, watch those videos too. No, they're better than me. I'm not as structured as some of these kids are. 
<laughs> That's incredible. It makes me scared, uh, hopeful and scared about what the next 10, 20 yeah. years uh, will look like. Um, you know, obviously over the past decade, you all have expanded into a lot of areas. I mentioned Rishi, our chief medical officer, helped work with you to create Khan Academy Health and Medicine. You partnered with the, the folks who make the LSAT on Khan Academy Law, same with the College Board and free SAT, ACT prep, and then Bank of America, I believe, on financial literacy. So tons of partnerships. Can you talk to us a bit about some of the most impactful partnerships and how you see partnerships playing a role in the success of what you've done at Khan Academy? Yeah, I mean, you just listed most of our major partnerships over the years. Partnerships can be really powerful, but you have to kind of go into them with eyes wide open too. But, you know, all of these partnerships helped either resource or validate or amplify parts of this mission in really powerful ways. And I think that's what the value of partnership is, is that you don't have to do everything yourself. There's other folks there that, you know, you can amplify each other. A lot of times one plus one is equal to three or five. You know, our mission, free world-class education for anyone, anywhere, we have no delusion that we're going to be able to do that by ourselves. Uh, that's arguably the mission of the entire global education system. Totally. And I've seen some of the most impressive ones I've seen are with telecom providers in traditionally under-resourced countries like Brazil or in, in the African continent, um, where they provide free Khan Academy wouldn't affect the data plan. And do you think uh, you'll see many more of those with COVID or has that already ramped up because of COVID? People can't go to schoolhouses anymore, so they need access to either downloadable material or through their mobile phones to your resources. Digital divide and internet access is obviously foundational for Khan Academy to be able to do its work. And I would argue it's foundational for people to even participate in the economy these days. There's probably even a health aspect of it. It's foundational to just kind of be educated and take care of your family and things like that. What you've alluded to in like Telcel in Mexico, they zero rated Khan Academy on cell phones. So if kids are learning, that kind of stuff is cool. We want to support as much of that as we can and get as many people to do that as possible. So one very negative thing of COVID, you know, a big dark cloud of COVID has been the digital divide issue. Large chunks of population, even wealthy countries like the U.S., 20, 30 percent don't have sufficient Internet access. And so those kids are not able to engage the way they need to. If there's a silver lining, I've never seen more energy around closing the digital divide at home than I've seen in the last six months. So hopefully, fingers crossed, we see some movement. And, you know, to make it tangible, We've already done, two, in the U.S., we've done $2 trillion of, of stimulus packages. What people are talking about going forward is another 2 to $4 trillion. 1% of a trillion is $10 billion. 1% or 2% of one of these rounds of stimulus is probably sufficient to completely close the digital divide in the United States so that this isn't an issue. And I don't know what the other 98% is. I mean, there's some good things in there, but uh, this seems like a real no-brainer that would be a huge investment in human capital and infrastructure in the country. That's an incredible way to put it. I mean, we've all heard of the stories of in the U.S., under-resourced students uh, in rural places or urban centers having to go to McDonald's, sitting in the mm-hmm. McDonald's or parking lot to use uh, the Internet and access resources like Khan Academy. So going into 2020, a lot of us were making predictions about what the new decade would bring. And I don't think any of us predicted even a third of what's happened this year. Um, what were your predictions going into 2020 for Khan Academy and for the education system as a whole? And what do you think is different now based on what's happened this year? You know, I, what I've been telling the team at Khan Academy is uh, we're kind of entering into phase three of our organization. Phase one was me tutoring cousins, operating out of a walk-in closet, just trying to show the world that this is a viable project. It's worth supporting. It could make a dent in the universe. 
phase two was when Google and Bill Gates and all these people, we need more funding. You know, sometimes when I mention Bill Gates or Google, people are like, oh, they have as much money as they need. No, they're keeping us hungry. So we, we need more support. But, you know, when we started getting validation from some of these very serious people and started getting resources to start building out a team and getting office space and whatever else, that was phase two, where we showed that we could scale to tens of millions. We ran efficacy studies. We scaled our content. You know, we now have all of math from pre-K through core of college. Uh, we're doing a big push in the sciences so we can have all of the sciences from middle and high school. We've even started to dabble in the social sciences and in, in language arts and obviously all the translation projects, the efficacy studies in school. So that this last 10 years has been proving that out. Like we can scale to many, many tens of millions of folks. And that by itself, we're proud of, very proud of. It's a huge, you know, the social return on investment where the budget of a large high school, we reach over 100 million folks every year. But the next phase, and I tell this to the team, I tell this to funders, this is where we need to really de- start delivering on free world-class education for anyone, anywhere, which to me means moving the dial for countries, uh, which, you know, I, I get a little stressed when I say it, but I think that's the task at hand for Khan Academy. Uh, because, you know, it, on one level, I'm like, Sal, are you being delusional? Because, you know, the U.S. spends several trillion dollars, I think one trillion a year on U.S. education. Uh, you know, we're, we're a vapor of a vapor of that, but we have reason to believe that the way we do it with the scale, the efficiency that we can really empower teachers, we can really empower families, really empower students. And to be clear, I don't view this as a replacement for traditional education. I view this ideally as something that can superpower what a teacher can do or what a family can do. Uh, so that's where we are. And so if I were to make a prediction for the next decade, I run optimistic, is that we actually do start to move the dial. You know, the U.S. is where we're the most fleshed out, but you know, we're very deep in places like Brazil and Spanish speaking Latin America and India. I hope we can start showing we're moving the dial for districts, for states, and in some cases, even uh, countries. The three pillars of Khan Academy I've always talked about. Pillar one is, can we make all the course materials available from pre-K through the core of college? Second one is, can we do it in a way that's optimally engaging and personalized? And the third one is, can we take those artifacts and create credentials or signals that matter to the world? I think in the next decade, those things are going to happen. You're going to see pathways that are competency-based. That doesn't matter if it took you two weeks or two years to learn it. If you learned it, you learned it. And everyone in the world or everyone in the country is going to recognize it. And it's going to unlock doors for higher education. It's going to unlock doors for apprenticeships. COVID, in my mind, just accelerates all of this. You know, a lot of this stuff that I say, maybe in five years, we'll get to the credentialing. Or maybe in 10 years, we'll get to -to peer-to-peer tutoring. COVID's made me say, no, we got to do this like next month if we can. And so I've said, I've spawned up a couple of side nonprofits that are very complementary and are kind of built on, layered on top of Khan Academy to do peer-to-peer tutoring. So schoolhouse.world, anyone can get free tutoring there now, or anyone can be a tutor if they're vetted. Uh, It's also doing certification. You master something on Khan Academy, submit a video of yourself doing it while explaining it out loud to the schoolhouse community. You'll be peer reviewed, looks legit. We say you've mastered it on your transcript. And you get a video artifact of it. And University of Chicago just announced last week that they're taking that into consideration for this year's admission cycle. And they're giving scholarships based on your performance there. So, you know, I see all of, all of this is just going to get accelerated uh, because of all the, the strangeness of the past year. I love that. I mean, that's tremendous. I didn't know that about uh, the side nonprofits. I've always said at Osmosis that, you know, you have very high intent learners who want to get into residency, get into med school, get into nursing school. And the application process, the one size fits all, write a personal statement, you know, in some ways it's useful, but in other ways, take these high intent people and have them do something helpful, right? Stack Overflow is a very successful computer science site where very high intent people could give back to the community teaching how to code. And for med schools, we were like, 
well, instead of just applying with your personal statement, how about you go and translate a Wikipedia article to another language if you can do that, or edit a Wikipedia article if you can. So it sounds very similar. And- or tutor other people on the MCAT. I mean, that's the ultimate, you know, what could be more powerful than a high MCAT score? If you're an MCAT tutor, <laughs> you know? So the ultimate certification on Schoolhouse, the first level is you showed mastery on Khan Academy and you've submitted a video, so it doesn't look like you cheated. But the, the highest level of certification is you're a highly rated tutor in that unit in calculus or physics or biology. And if someone has that, honestly, that's great for college. That's great for graduate school, for med school. And frankly, I'd, I'd hire that person. I don't even care what their GPA is in college. If they're a highly rated tutor in like some topics that I really care about, not only do they have subject matter mastery, but that means that they're great communicators. They have empathy. They have patience. That seems like a winning mix. I, that's a really good point. That's something I, I'm going to look that up after this interview and see if we can. Uh, I'm recruiting you to teach. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll carve that out for sure. I mean, I, that's actually how I got into education. I don't know if you know this, but when I first met Rishi at a TED Med, I actually asked him for an intro to you seven years ago because I was writing a book for college admissions and SAT and ACT prep. I don't know if you ever passed that request along, but certainly it was something I was a uh, very respectful of what you had accomplished even back in 2013. So I know we're coming up in time. One question that we always like to ask our guests is, since our audience consists of millions of current and future healthcare professionals primarily, what advice would you give to somebody considering a career in healthcare or any one of your students who may be considering that career, especially given what's happened with COVID? Yeah, you know, take anything I have to say with a grain of salt. I've been a my wife, you know, and we started dating when she was a first year med student. So I've observed her medical career. So I'm close to it, but I'm not a doctor. I was an MCAT instructor for Princeton Review, incidentally. You know, my, my advice, I mean, one, it's an amazing profession, but, you know, it's always good to go in with eyes wide open, like not to, you know, I'll say the obvious stereotype that many say South Asian families, like where you and I grew up, uh, you know, they, they view the medical profession as like everything. And if you're not that, maybe it's nothing. Um, and so I think you really have to introspect of, as to why you're doing it. Are you doing it because, you know, your, your family or your culture is telling you that this is the only way to do it, or it's a way to have a secure life. And like, those are all legitimate things. You need respect, you need, you know, money and, and, and job security and all this, or is it really about moving the dial for people? Because, you know, when, when you see the actual work of doctoring, it's a service that you're doing for people. And that goes both ways. You know, I think for people with the right mindset, they like being in service to other people. Well, I think for others, they're like, oh, this is hard. Like, I wish I had a desk job and was able to write software, record videos like Sal and stuff like that. So I've, I've met people who are on either side of that. Um, and I would say the other thing is, it's a, I think it's a really exciting time to go into medicine because there's so many opportunities for improvement in terms of how healthcare, you know, I think the intersection between health and education is a really interesting one. A lot of bad outcomes actually are really just because of non-compliance or, or people just not knowing how to take care of themselves as well as they should, or not a good efficient use of doctor's time, or maybe they have to explain more than they should have to and things like that. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there. You know, I have a lot of friends in the venture capital community who are doing, I think, some interesting things in healthcare. So it's an exciting time to be a doctor, but I think it's all encompassing. You have to go into it for the right reason. Yeah, that's that's tremendous. And as one person who actually I went to med school, I'm still on leave from Hopkins Med School, but I mostly followed in your <laughs> I'm sure they're waiting for when are you gonna come? My mind, it's funny, like I know you went to HBS too. I was uh debating whether to defer or not even go to HBS in the middle. And my mom said, Look, Shiv, you've already 
taken time off of Hopkins Med School. If you don't go to HBS, I will disown you. So I finally I did that, made her happy. Yeah, and, and I mean, people might think that that's some kind of just like false threat. I mean, I don't know about your mom. She might have been joking, but I know some families, some who I'm related to, where that would be a, like a real threat. Yeah. Unfortunately. not. I don't endorse that. I don't endorse it, but... <laughs> There's some psychological trauma that happens. There is immigrant South Asian families for sure. Um, <laughs> well, I don't want to take up too much of your time because I know we're out of time, but I will say the the patient education and engagement piece is something that you and I have spoken about before that I think is extremely exciting, especially uh, with what COVID has proven to us about how little people know about public health measures. I mean, it took forever to get people to wash their hands or wear masks and still a lot of people don't do it. But um, is there anything final that you want to be able to share with our audience so we can be respectful of your time. Anything I didn't ask that you'd like to share? No, I think we covered everything. You know, whenever there's a big crisis, oh, is it Winston Churchill never waste a good crisis? And obviously we're having a crisis in healthcare. We're having a crisis in economics. We're having a crisis in education right now, but that's an opportunity. So, you know, for, for especially the young folks listening, they, they could probably tackle things in all three of those layers considering their interest in healthcare. So it's interesting times to be alive. Those are some great parting words. And Sal, on behalf not only of our listeners, I uh, really want to thank you for taking the time. But also, it's interesting, whenever I meet a medical student or even doctors now, because you've been doing Khan Academy for 10 years, so many of them say they got their start and were able to finally understand things because they started on Khan Academy. So thanks for, as we say, raising the line and helping people get into the healthcare profession and really any profession from the start. Really appreciate the work you do. It's all for selfish motivation, so they take better care of me when I inevitably show up. Hopefully you won't need hundreds of millions of doctors because that's what you've... Uh, you know, <laughs> one good one or a handful of good ones. That's right. Well, with that, I'm Shiv Gaglani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>